Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. We're all aware of the very real problem of climate change in the present day. But what was Australia's climate like before official weather records began? How do scientists use tree rings, ice cores and tropical corals to retrace the past? What do indigenous seasonal calendars reveal? And what do colonists' diary entries about rainfall, droughts, bushfires and snowfalls tell us about natural climate cycles? Dr. Joelle Gerges is a climate scientist and paleoclimatologist at the University of Melbourne. She's a writer and stitcher of climate time, bringing together these bureau recordings, colonists' diaries, Aboriginal dreaming stories and tree rings. Her book Sunburnt Country pieces together Australia's climate history for the first time and uncovers a continent long vulnerable to climate extremes and variability. Dr. Joelle Gerges sat down to chat with our reporter Steve Grimwade about her book, her work in deciphering Australia's climate story and what climate change looks like in our own backyard. Joelle, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Let's go back to when it all started. What was your first memory of science? Well, I guess my first memory more of, I guess, climate extremes would be in 1994 as a high school student. And I was living in Sydney and there was really major bushfires in my local area and there was just ash falling all over our neighbourhood and it was really quite terrifying. And it made me start to think a little bit about climate extremes. Uh, and then later on when I started university, I learnt about El Nino, which is one of the main drivers of Australia's climate variability. And I learnt that these things were quite related. And so I started to want to be able to join the dots between the sorts of things that we experience as humans, things like bushfires or droughts or floods or various other um, extremes, and try and join the dots of what causes them and are they changing. 2009 or thereabouts, you started a project that seems to have consumed much of your life since then. Uh, what was it and, and what was the objective? Okay, so it was called the Southeastern Australian Recent Climate History Project or the Search Project. It's a little bit of a mouthful. Great acronym though. Yeah, so effectively what it was trying to do was reconstruct our climate history back all the way to 1788, where we had first European settlement uh, in the first instance. So we wanted to really get a sense of what records we could use from uh, the colonial era. So things like early settler accounts, early newspapers, government correspondence, even farm diaries and things like that. So there was a whole uh, range of different historical sources that had been really overlooked when it came to uh, weather and climate variability. And so we teamed up with the National Library, the State Library of Victoria, the State Library in New South Wales, uh, and also historians here at the University of Melbourne. And we tried to piece together what the historical record had to say about past climate extremes and, and just general variability, which was really interesting and exciting as a scientist to be able to delve into these really rich resources that we as scientists don't often get to do. It's an interesting idea too, because um, I'm, I'm interested in how well has human memory served us with regards to the variability of climate and actually recording these changes. How much can you trust a colonist? And there's one in particular, I think, in 1788 that says, oh, from the boat, I can see snow. How can you trust that? 
Well, that's a really good question. So that's why we never really look at one uh, sort of data source in isolation. So we looked at these um, diaries and anecdotal accounts from the historical record, but we're also really interested in recovering early weather records. So there are actually instrumental weather observations of temperature and, and air pressure and sometimes even rainfall um, that were actually contained in a range of different scientific sources. So not only would we look at the diaries and what people were saying that we're actually experiencing these weather and climate extremes in the landscape, we also look to cross-check to see whether or not they were just being, um, you know, exaggerating a little or, or something like that. So always in the type of work that I've been involved in in the past decade, we always try and use multiple lines of evidence. So aside from looking at those early historical records, we looked at early weather records, which are quantitative numbers, if you like. And then we also used records from the natural world. So we looked at things like tree rings and corals and ice cores from the broader Australian region to be able to take our understanding of climate variations back centuries into the past. And so we kind of used a bit of a three-pronged approach to the exercise, which I think was um, pretty useful. And another source we looked at was um, climate models as well, because in some of the work that we looked at, we wanted to understand, well, is it just natural variability or are we actually looking at a climate change signal, which has got to do with um, a human fingerprint on the, on the Earth's climate? You've recently released a book, uh, Sunburnt Country, uh, re released by uh, Melbourne Uni Publishing. And I'm going to return to this later on and how you approach the writing. But an interesting aspect of this are the paintings and the pictures and the art that is another resource for actually finding out what happened. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that was one of the most enjoyable aspects, I think, of writing this book um, and also doing the research is that we were really lucky to have partners like the National Library and the State Libraries. And often they would send us images. So they knew we were looking at things like droughts and floods and bushfires. And it was amazing to see that actually in the historical record, in the pictures collections, that there are very often... Just like, I guess, today, when there's a significant weather event, people like take photos of them or they record them. But in the early era, they, they did watercolour paintings and other types of artworks. Um, and then in the 19th century, when photography was uh, available, there's also a range of really early um, historical images. And so once we had an image, we could also have a look to think about what was the story behind that particular event. And that was really interesting because I think it is a nice way of just engaging in this topic in a really different way. And I really like art and I think it was just a nice way to um, bring it to life because it's not just always about the numbers. So when we try and work our way backwards and we do try and work our way from you know the current bureau recordings and then we go further back and we go to the diaries and we go to those first instrumental recordings, then you go back through... Um, well, you go through dreaming stories as well. Maybe can you tell me about um, Indigenous, how Indigenous stories, have they informed this research? Can they? So a lot of people are really interested in Indigenous stories, and for good reason. They are really fascinating. I guess it's not exactly the kind of information that we can directly use in the type of work that we do, uh, because oftentimes we are looking at quantitative measures of, say, temperature or rainfall and these sorts of climate variables. And, and so um, that's not to say it's not useful information, but it's it's a little bit, um, yeah, not, not quite direct. and But what it does do is it provides us with a lot of really in interesting information about how Indigenous people were perceiving the landscape and the climate over long periods of time. And even right now. So for instance, um, the Bureau of Meteorology have actually done some work 
with Indigenous communities in various places that have found that there are up to six different seasons uh, recorded in, in different parts of Australia. And so that really is a little bit different to the European sort of four-season calendar. Um, and so that gives us a really different appreciation and this sort of nuance about uh, about the landscape. So Indigenous people were looking at things like uh, the timing of flowering plants or the arrival of particular water birds and, and changes in um, wind direction and, and rain clouds and things like that. So they're really interesting stories, and I do talk about them in Sunburnt Country. Um, but in terms of the research, it, it wasn't uh, actually incorporated in the main part of the project. But I did want to look at it, so that's why I put it in the book. Let's go back beyond uh, uh, the dreaming stories to tree rings, core samples. I mean, this really is where your work begins to sort of uh, capture us. And really, it seems to be the foundation of your work is stitching together different ways of understanding uh, geological time or climate time. So our understanding of climate variations is really confined to about 150 years where we've got um, instrumental weather observations around the planet. And while that is really interesting and important, and it's definitely the highest quality record that we have, um, to be able to go further back in time to look at these longer term cycles that are present in the Earth's climate, we have to look at other records. So we look to the natural world. So when we've got things like trees, they put on an annual band and that annual ring is, is related to things like temperature and rainfall variations during its growing season. So when it's a poor year, it might put on a very thin ring. And when it's a really good year, it might put on a wide ring. And then you can actually determine a statistical relationship between the instrumental weather observations that you have from, say, the Bureau of Meteorology. You can look at the period of overlap with the um, tree ring record, and then you can develop that statistical relationship and take that back in time. And so effectively, you end up extending the climate record by hundreds and even thousands of years in some instances. And so we use that idea, um, and that field of science is known, known as paleoclimatology, and paleo just means ancient, and climatology is all of accumulated weather. And so what we're able to do is provide us with that long lens view, that long-term uh, perspective on what the climate was doing before we actually had people recording um, weather observations in the landscape. So we have um, hue and pines in, in Tasmania, which so they, they get us back maybe seven or eight hundred years, perhaps. Do they? Or? Oh, even longer. Even? Some of the some of those, um, the longest tree, I think, um, the oldest tree in Tasmania, I think, is around about two thousand years at least. That record from the hue and pine is about four thousand years old. Because yeah. you can also um, you can probably get uh, dredge up old hue and pines that have been long dead. That's right, exactly. So once a big old tree dies and gets uh, c you know, covered up in a swamp or something like that, you can actually recover that material and people um, look at that and then you're, they're able to piece together the, 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 the tree ring record from using modern trees, which are still alive and in the landscape, and also dead trees that are buried. And so you have these buried forests that people look at and then you can actually stitch all of that together and get a really long-term climate record. So I think the human pine record these days is around 4,000 years old, um, 4,000 years in length, which is quite remarkable. It's one of the longest in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, for sure. And um, so we did use that record when we were looking at this work. Uh, and we also used material from um, New Zealand. Um, in, in Northern New Zealand, there's a species called cowrie, which is part of the Agathus group, which is a really ancient conifer. It's also related to um, the Wallamai pine group that's in the Blue Mountains that some people might have heard of. Uh, so these are really ancient trees from a time when the earth was really young. And so um, that they're really rare and there's not too many of them left. And, and luckily we were able to access some of those uh, forests in northern New Zealand and use that type of work for uh, climate reconstruction.
my view of you as a researcher and researchers more general is this idea of dry science. But really, when you write the story about being, you know, going close to Tanamahuta, which is in the, it's not the, is it the Northlands of New Zealand? Or? Yeah, Northland, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you, you get the opportunity to go sort of to, to other trees that are deeper in the forest that punters like myself can't see. And you also describe a really beautiful uh, experience with uh, the local Indigenous people and, and their relationship with the tree. Maybe you could talk about that. It really was a privilege working in that part of the world. Um, I was part of a research team that have been working on cowrie tree ring science for about 20 years. And um, we obtained... Um, you know, special uh, permission to go and, and, and uh, sample these trees. And we explained why it was important. And it, it actually um, took me about six months of community consultation where I went and spoke to community elders and I spoke to a range of different groups and I explained what we were doing and why it was important. And once they understood that, they were really behind it. And we actually had some local guys come and help us out and we had um, an elder come as well and bless uh, our um, work in the forest, which was really quite extraordinary and really to be to be walking through these really ancient forests and, and and these forest giants it's it's one of the you know one of the most special experiences I think I've had in my life and I, I doubt I'll ever get to do something like that again I have to convince you that the mountain ash is as, as beautiful a tree and we'll send you up to the dandenongs <laughs> not not as long lived unfortunately yeah um you, look I, and this is my I've got a love of trees so I've got to ask a little bit further um you write of polishing that sample because you core into the tree and you, you bring out a sample which is quite thin is it one distinct piece uh, and and can and you I think you can you polish the whole piece is it a foot long is it two feet long Okay, good question. And so basically what we do is we use a handheld increment borer, which is effectively like a large corkscrew, and we hand drill it into the tree. And it doesn't damage the tree in any major way, otherwise we wouldn't be able to do it. Uh, And then we extract a wooden core, which is effectively the size of a drinking straw. It's really tiny. Um, And then what we do is we mount it on a wooden um, block and then we sand it down using sandpaper. And what that does is actually reveal all these nice rings. And you can either do, um, we had permits to look at 30 centimetre cores, but also metre cores from some of the older trees. So we're looking at a metre of just a really thin rod, if you like, of of wood. And, um, And usually we would take three different samples from each tree to make sure we haven't skipped a ring because sometimes you could, if there's wedging, it doesn't put down a, a, a ring in an even way, you might miss it. So you have to do uh, three different samples to be able to get an indication of the correct dating, which is all, it has to be as precise as possible. It's the most precise method we have in, in paleoclimatology, and it basically forms the backbone of what we understand about long-term climate variations um, in the most um, precise part of the geologic record, because you can use other things like um, ice cores and marine sediments, which give us really long-term records. But in terms of the year-by-year, tree rings are the best records that we have. And so I hope that makes sense. So effectively what we do is we just have these samples which we sand down and then we look at them under a microscope and then count those different um, ring widths. So we're looking at that alternation between wide and narrow to get a sense of are there patterns. And then we pull all of that information from an individual tree into all the different trees we've got from a stand of forests and then a whole bunch of uh, study sites that we have. So in the end, you can have hundreds of trees, 500 trees at times, uh, because like I said, this project was part of a a longer term study that's been going for about 20 years at the University of Auckland. I was a PhD student working there. So I guess we've we've now got to come to uh, not not the end of the story and might be the start of the story, actually. What has the data shown you? 
It's a good question. I'll talk about what we've found in terms of once we were able to collate all these different types of records, so we, we collected the cowrie tree rings from New Zealand. We also looked at Great Barrier Reef corals and ice cores from Antarctica. And I was involved in a global effort to uh, consolidate all of these natural archives for our region. And then what we wanted to do is figure out, well, what's the temperature been like in our region? Because obviously the globe is warming and we wanted to understand whether or not the temperature we've been experiencing in our region, is it unusual or is it just part of these natural, long-term natural fluctuations? And so what my team did is we developed a 1,000-year um, temperature reconstruction using all of these natural records. Year by year, we went back year by year in time. And what we found is that the warmest 30 years of the last 1,000 years actually occurs in the most recent period from 1985 to 2014, which was the last period, data point we had for the particular study. And, and effectively what that shows is that we are now starting to move out of the realm of natural variability that we've just seen in, in the recent um, geologic past. And another part of that study was that we also looked at climate model simulations where we were able to determine, well, is this just a natural fluctuation or is this something that has a human fingerprint? So we looked at that and we found that we couldn't reproduce the rate and the magnitude of the warming that we experience in, in our region without having the presence of greenhouse gases in the models, which effectively showed us that um, the Australasian region is warming and we have our fingerprints are all over that signal. So you, you write that uh, Australia has one of the most spectacularly erratic climates in the world. Um, is there anything normal about our weather ever? Uh, what can <laughs> we expect so Australia sits in one of the great subtropical desert belts of the world. So just below the tropics, we have effectively an arid zone. And that just has to do with the way that the, the atmosphere circulates. And so places like Australia and Chile and, and South Africa, there are desert belts. And so that inherently gives us a dry climate. So we're actually a continent where two thirds of Australia is either arid or semi-arid. So we receive less than 50 centimetres of rainfall a year, which is not very much at all. So it's a very, very dry continent. And effectively, we just have these wet coastal fringes where most of our pop 85% of our population lives on the coast. And so that gives us sort of the background in terms of um, the, the sort of setup that we're dealing with when it comes to climate variability in Australia. And so the other the other issue or the other factor that, that drives um, Australian climate variability is that we're a large island sur surrounded by ocean. So our climate is influenced by a range of different sources from the from the Indian Ocean, Southern Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. And what that does is bring in a whole range of factors which makes it quite complex, actually, compared to some other different regions of the world where they might just have you know, a continental area where they might be far from the sea and, and it's a pretty moderate climate. But with Australia, because of our positioning on the planet in that subtropical region of the world, and also because of our um, we're surrounded by a lot of ocean, it means that we are um, in for an interesting ride sometimes. If we have high variability, is it hard to make that... Uh that charge that it is actually not all natural variability? Well, this is where I think there's been a lot of public confusion because it seems that because we have this high variability, that can sometimes mask the climate change signal. And so people think, well, we've all been through it all before, but that's not quite the case. So we know that Australia is the land of drought and flooding rains. This we know. No one disputes that. But in recent years, really since 1850, around the world, we've actually changed the, the chemistry of the atmosphere and the ocean to such a point where we've actually changed the fundamental 
operation um, of the climate system. And that's been through uh, the burning of fossil fuels to support human activity and also the clearing of land surfaces, which also alters uh, the carbon cycle. So forests soak up CO2 and, and moderates the, the warming that we experience um, around the world. So since 1850, we've actually accelerated the rates of change that we've experienced. And what that does is it means that all of our weather and climate is now occurring on the background of a warming planet. And so if you can think of it, it's sort of like natural variability, but on steroids. It's getting a bit of a kick from this warming. And when you might think, well, you know, Australia's warmed by one degree, but even with one degree, we're starting to see some very serious impacts. Uh, and that's why scientists are really concerned, because if we are careering down the, the line to a, a future world where we are very likely at this stage to cross over the two degrees that is, is, is set out in the uh, United Nations Paris Agreement in terms of trying to stabilise climate change, then we, we're looking at a radically altered planet. What were you most surprised by in your data? Was there anything in particular that stood out and and made you think twice or more than that? Well, I guess for me, when I approached this this question, just from a scientific point of view, we didn't really know what we were going to find. And the warming in the region is really distinctive. And you see it, and it stands out. And I think, um, I guess it was just a surprise to see that. I mean, I, mean, I you never know what you're going to you know, experience when you do scientific research, but it was a very clear result. And and I thought, you know, it was something significant when we had it. And, and when we, re, we sort of ran the numbers and looked at it, we realized that we had a significant piece of work on our hands because um, people had already looked at the instrumental record and looked at those climate modeling studies and determined that there was a human signal in the um, Australian climate record. But it was the first time we were able to use those records from the natural world. And also it was just another line of evidence, if you like, um, and I guess what did surprise me, not even from the scientific perspective, was more from the um, broader perspective or community or political perspective, if you like, was the backlash that our team received as a result of that. That was probably the most surprising element, not the actual scientific results. Yeah, I guess scientists from the Renaissance have often found themselves on the right end of history or science, but the wrong end of the stick. How are you prepared for the controversy that came out of your research? To be quite honest, I don't think I really was prepared. As a, as a scientist, we just do our work and then, I guess, naively put it out into the community in, in the hope that it helps somehow. And maybe we can actually explain what that controversy was. Okay, the controversy just had to do with with that temperature reconstruction paper that we looked at. I mean, there's a chapter in my book which details some of the, the details around what actually happened. But effectively, people were trying to uh, undermine the results and sort of discredit um, me and also my team and cast doubt on the results that we'd come up with in, in that study, which was, um, yeah, it was unfortunate. How, how do you keep certain of your work when it's under sustained attack and, and what becomes important to you as a, a as in your life, as a worker, as a researcher, as a human? Yeah, there's two, two parts to that question. The first is how do we stay, remain confident? Well, we ran our results a thousand times each uh, with using four different method, methods, sorry, 3,000 times each using four different methods. So in, in the end, we had 12,000 um, different reconstructions of the same, using the same data set. And so, and then we use a separate climate model just to make sure that we, you know, that that result was also reproducible because in science, things need to be re reproducible. So if we re reproduce um, the results using different tech, four different st independent statistical methods and also different climate models, then we can probably say we're fairly confident uh, in our results. And, um, and we were, and that's why we persisted with this 
because it was important. And even though we were under a lot of pressure, an immense amount of pressure, uh, we felt that it was an important result for the region and weren't going to back down. Was there a piece of advice or support that you received in this period that probably helped any more than any other, or even during your life more generally? I mean, I was really lucky to have a terrific mentor, uh, Professor David Caroli. He's a bit of a stalwart of uh, climate change um, debates in Australia, and I was really lucky to have his wisdom to draw on, and he had a lot of great personal advice, but also legal advice because we were coming under legal attack through the Freedom of Information Request Avenue, where we had to release a lot of uh, emails and people were pouring over our correspondence and things like that. Oh, look, I, I, I think it, it probably hit, it hit me hard. Um, I don't think I was prepared for it. I mean, thankfully, I've got terrific, uh, you know, support networks around me uh, now. So I think if anything like that happened now, it'd be quite different. You know, if we can learn from you, I mean, obviously you do science for an outcome and in the hope that people will learn. And that's, I mean, both big picture policy, but that's also individuals. I mean, I mean, you wrote that research shows that between 1988 and 1997, one farmer committed suicide every four days. Um, and that, I think this was a result of the drought at the time. So how is climate science and modelling beginning to help farmers prepare for the, their world? Well, it's interesting. I've just literally this week been at a conference on climate change adaptation, and I saw a really interesting um, presentation by a, a senior economist, actually, at the University of Adelaide, and she was looking at what actually causes a farmer to walk off their land. And, and they, she looked at a whole range of different variables, but the number one um, factor was maximum temperatures. So when conditions became too hot, they had to walk off the land. It was just became unviable to actually farm under those conditions because if you think about it, I mean, temperature also influences the amount of available moisture that's in, in the system, whether it be through dams with evaporation and that kind of thing. But effectively, it's becoming too hot to farm in parts of the Murray-Darling Basin. And so people are walking off the land. And she was also saying that that's having really big impacts because if you're thinking about somebody, say, in their mid-60s walking off the land and maybe they're, you know, multiple generations of people that have, have worked that land, they have an identity crisis and they don't know what to do with themselves. And many times that leads to a lot of mental health issues and people become really despairing and despondent and it can end in personal tragedy. It's pretty crazy. I mean, humans... Uh well, particularly interested in the weather, but less concerned by the climate. I mean, we have very short timeframes that we work within. Um, and even, I've, I mean, I've, I've got this in my mind that farmers during wet periods, maybe is it La Nina periods, would potentially even migrate north and find more, what was more arid land in the past, but it's now actually able to be used. And then they can find it tough to get off that land. Yeah, so I actually talk about that in the context of South Australia during the 1880s and 90s. And there was this um, goiter line that you might have heard of where they had um, in the northern part of the state, it's obviously really arid and you can't really farm that area. And then south of that line is where you are able to um, uh, develop agriculture. And during a really wet period in the late 19th century, there were more storm fronts coming through um, the south, which meant that there was more rainfall you know, protruding further inland. And uh, and so people actually moved their farms further inland. And then when the first major drought hit after that period, it was just a wet period, but then it went, when it actually switched back, um, farms had to be abandoned. And, uh, you know, it was the beginning of a longer-term trend in um, decline and rainfall that we're starting to see in that region. What, what do you think we're doing well with regards to approaching climate change? 
at this conference I just attended, I did hear about um, a state climate change adaptation plan from South Australia. So it looks like the states are really taking the lead when it comes to climate change. And I also heard about um, a water uh, report coming out from Victoria, which is looking at um, maintaining uh, you know, water supply in Victoria under climate change. And I think that this is the, really the start of what we're starting to see in Australia, but it's not really coming from the federal level. It's coming from the state level and also the local level as well, where there are many local uh, councils that are becoming carbon neutral and, and doing all sorts of things on those local levels, which is really, really important. And it's the same sort of um, trend that we've seen in the United States as well, where there isn't um, any sort of federal leadership. But there is a lot of leadership in those sort of middle tiers where people are really passionate about trying to safeguard their future and their livelihoods and their businesses and, and all that sort of thing. And I think that we're seeing that here in Australia. But I really, really hope that people start to realise just how urgent this is. Like, really, I've been talking as I've been travelling around talking about this book, there been all sorts of things happening as I've been travelling around, which has been pretty interesting. But one of the um, the major things that's happened in the last couple of years has been um, the bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef. We've seen mass bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef, which has actually caused the death of 50% of all the corals. So we're talking about a major, you know, not just a natural, but, you know, a cultural icon. It's a UNESCO World Heritage listed area. It's an area that David Attenborough, like our most famous naturalist, has said that it's the most incredible natural wonder that he's ever experienced. And here we are, and we're letting that just die on our watch. And I, I think that is just extraordinary. And as a scientist, I never expected to see that in my lifetime. And it really, really does uh, distress me to see these things playing out um, under just just so quickly. That's the thing that really surprises me. And I, um, when I wrote Sunburnt Country, it allowed me this opportunity to have this overview and join the dots. Because as a researcher, I'm often beavering away on a particular research project and, and that takes all of my attention and it's really interesting and exciting, but I never really get that perspective um, that you can get when you sit down to write a book where I was really interested in what, what are the signals in, say, human health or, you know, in psychology, a psychologist writing about climate change, turns out that they are. Um, and also just looking at all of the different events um, playing out and, and being able to try and join the dots between these things so people can make up their own mind about um, the evidence that I'm providing. But I'm providing an opportunity for people to, to see what the scientific community agree on in terms of um, our, our climate history and also our future climate. So I had eight different colleagues review the material in the book to make sure that I wasn't coming out on a limb and saying anything outrageous because that's not my style. And it's also um, the hallmarks of good science, I think, is to be as faithful as you can to what the data um, are showing. But the data is quite a, it can be dry. So I'm interested in that idea of how you translate your research into nonfiction uh, in Sunburn Country and how hard it was for you to find a new, broader language to communicate your ideas. Well, I love reading and I love books. And I guess there's always been a little bit of a, you know, I, I, I'm really interested in science and I'm really interested in writing. And so this was an opportunity to bring both of those worlds together for me. Uh, and so while the content we could, at times was really challenging because um, I was really trying to distill down lots of really complex science into easily readable little mini chapters, if you like. A lot of the chapters are sort of under 2,000 words each. Um and it was a challenge, but I enjoyed it because I really want people to read it and understand it and talk about it and, and do something about it um, because I think we're at the point now where we can't say we didn't know. 
And I think that's really the take-home message from sunburnt countries that it does piece together our climate history for the first time. And what that does is provide us with this sort of unparalleled perspective on the past, where we are right now and where we're going. And I think that's really important. And we've never been in a position to do that because the consolidation of the historical record was a very large task. Um, and as I said, I've been I worked on this with a team of people for about a decade in total. So it was a really big effort. So it, it's nice to see it come to life. And I guess for me, I love stories and I like trying to bring the fascination I feel for the natural world to other people. Um, and so sometimes, you know, I guess maybe I geek out a little bit in the book when I discovered, say, William Dawes's weather record for the first time. But that is just to show you that a lot of um, people like me are, are just, just genuinely really fascinated by uncovering um, these hidden treasures. Yeah, definitely. So are you, at the end, hopeful? Yeah, I am. I remember at one point having a discussion with my editor thinking, how am I going to end this book? But then I started to delve into the literature, which looked at all the things that are happening right now. And that actually blew me away because it was a lot more hopeful than I had realized. And again, because I am a physical scientist and I work on the fundamentals of the climate system, to get the opportunity to look into all these really detailed and clever reports, which are looking at how do we rapidly decarbonize um, our economy and our world, and I realized that it's actually feasible and a range of groups from the CSIRO to university groups and international groups have, have done this really, you know, careful work and it's absolutely achievable. Um, the problem is, is political will. And that is a real issue. Unfortunately, we get lost in a lot of uh, unhelpful conversations and sometimes the framing isn't quite right. I think people see it as, as loss and, and really negative. And, and while there certainly is an aspect of loss and grief, absolutely, I feel grief when I think about the loss of the Great Barrier Reef. But there is opportunity in terms of really transforming our society into a, a truly sustainable um, force on the planet rather than a destructive one. So, And there is opportunity, for instance, um, Australia's... Uh, electricity, solar is only responsible for 3% of Australia's electricity, which is, if you think about it, it's outrageous and it's stupid. I mean, there's no other way of putting it. I just think it's ridiculous that we aren't doing a bit better than that. And we're the sunniest continent on the planet. Um, we could be doing a lot better than we're doing, but there are real vested interests that want to maintain the status quo. But meanwhile, we, we know that the science is really clear that fossil fuels are damaging our climate in a way that is making our planet quite unsafe uh, and, and what scientists are concerned about is really trying to rein that in so we can avoid the more dangerous aspects of the change. And I think that we can do it. And I think that comes about from embracing that change rather than thinking, oh, it's all beyond us and you know it's all too hard and all this sort of thing. And I, I don't think that's helpful at all. And you also have to think about the intergenerational elements of this this whole uh, issue because you know future generations are going to be left without with a planet that we either protected for them or we just allowed to uh, crumble really around us and and I think right now I mean there there are battles being fought all over the world in this space and there are real leaders uh, I think in Europe there's a lot of work that's been done to really transition into renewable energy and also just into cultural shifts around our consumption and just the way that we do things on a personal level so whether we how we choose to use our money and, and how we choose to use our vote uh, as well. Uh, and I think it really is that time to stop being, a, I guess, a passive consumer or even a passive citizen and really starting to take a stand for the things that really matter. Because I, as far from where I sit, 
you know, this is upon us. Climate change is upon us right now. It's urgent. And we are the most vulnerable nation in the developed world. We really cannot afford any more delay when it comes to this issue. And I think that while it is really urgent, I think we need to keep a level head. And I just think we need to get on with the job of actually taking the advice of scientists and also the, um, the tech community where there's a lot of innovation happening in that space. And we just got to get on with the job. To go from that awful bumper sticker, think global, act local, picture me. I'm at a barbecue. I'm faced with a climate denialist. Besides breathing deeply, what do you want me to do? Well, I want you to actually just be honest about the concern that you feel for what you're seeing playing out in, in, in your life right now, but also the concern that, that you might feel for the future of the planet and realising that as Australians, it's not just natural variability. It's not natural variability anymore. It used to be, but it's not anymore. And so all of, like I said, all of our weather and climate is now playing out Um in a warmer world, and that means a more extreme climate. So at your barbecue, for instance, uh, in the future, we might be looking at summer temperatures of 50 degrees. You might not be able to have that barbecue outside. There you go, people. Be warned. Joelle Gerges, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks to Dr. Joelle Gerges, climate scientist and paleoclimatologist at the University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Steve Grimwade. The Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on May 11, 2018. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production by Dr. Andy Horvath and Sylvie Van Wall. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2018, University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this podcast, drop us a review on iTunes and check out the rest of the episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.